it's Monday the 5th of February and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won Jang-ho. Samsung Electronics Chairman Lee Jae-yong has been acquitted of charges related to a controversial merger of two Samsung affiliates allegedly undertaken to strengthen his control over the group. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. North Korea recently carried out four cruise missile tests within 10 days, including a submarine-launched cruise missile. We discuss the threats these missiles pose for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Monday Sports Roundup, we discuss another remarkable comeback by the Tilt Warriors at the AFC Asian Cup before previewing their semi-final match against Jordan this week. Let's begin Korea 24. The first ruling on a near four-year legal saga involving Samsung Electronics Chair Lee Jae-yong has finally been made. A whole court has found Lee not guilty of carrying out unfair market practices to tighten his claim to the company as its heir. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio news editor Daniel Chen. Daniel, hello. Hello there, jung So, Daniel, the court has dismissed charges of market manipulation and accounting fraud. Can you tell us more? Yes, on Monday, the Seoul Central District Court handed down the ruling for the conglomerate share. He has been acquitted of the charges connected to the controversial merger of two Samsung affiliates in 2015. Deciding the merger did not appear to be carried out illegally to strengthen Yi's grasp of the country's biggest conglomerate. This comes some three and a half years after the original indictment. The prosecution contended, though, that Samsung Group initiated the stock prices, rather inflated the stock prices of Jail Industries while driving down Samsung's CNT prices through various unfair practices. Such practices were suspected to include dissemination of false market information, the mass purchasing of affiliate stocks, and illegal lobbying of the National Pension Service, a major shareholder of Samsung CNT. On Monday, the court added there was no evidence to show three-to-one offer of Samsung CNT shares to Jeo shares was unfair and harmed shareholders, and said he was not guilty of false disclosure and accounting fraud related to Samsung Biologics, a subsidiary of Jeo. Okay, so this is a key ruling in this case, but we'll see if prosecutors do appeal, as expected, and see if it goes to an appellate court down the line. Let's move on. The whole city government announced plans to construct the world's largest vertical city in the central Yongsan district by early 2030. It's envisioned to be more than four times the size of New York's Hudson Yards. So, Daniel, can you tell us more about this announcement? Sure thing. On Monday, the Seoul Metropolitan Government unveiled a plan to build the world's largest vertical city in Yongsan District, designed in cooperation with the Korea Railroad Corporation and the Seoul Housing and Communities Corporation. The city would be built on a plot of land measuring some 500,000 square meters. It would be nearly four and a half times larger than Hudson Yards in New York. It will house a 100-story landmark and a 1.1-kilometer-long sky rail that will be built in a 45-story building. Construction of infrastructure will begin in the latter half of next year, and businesses and residents will be able to move in from early 2030. The Yongsan International Business District in 2010 was scrapped in 2013 for various reasons, including a lack of funds. With a new project, the district would be reborn as a compact city with three zones, an international business zone, a complex zone, and a support zone. So you can expect top-tier offices and hotels, support facilities, housing, education and cultural facilities, also parks, as well as a green square, arches and corridors. 
It sounds very ambitious indeed. Uh, let's turn to some other news as well now. South Korea will participate in a US-led multinational space security training event this month. This will be the seventh straight year we're joining the exercise. Can you tell us more? According to the Air Force, the Global Sentinel 2024 is on from Monday through February 16th at the US Space Command at Vandenberg Space Force Base in California with some 250 people from 28 countries. Personnel from the Air Force, the Korea Astronomy and Space Science Institute, as well as the Korea Aerospace Research Institute will take part, along with personnel from the Army and Navy, space experts at the Agency for Defense Development, Korea Astronomy and Space Science Institute, and the Korea Aerospace Research Institute. South Korea is teaming up with Australia, New Zealand, and Japan for the training, which will focus on acquiring knowledge to respond to space situations, identifying and supplementing developments in the field of space domain awareness, and improving international and civil military joint response capabilities related to space situations. Meanwhile, military authorities believe North Korea has engaged in four rounds of cruise missile launches this year alone as part of efforts to test the efficacy of its weapons under development. So on Monday's regular press briefing, JCS spokesperson Yi Sung-jun revealed the assessment, asked if the reclusive state had previously tested cruise missiles in such a fashion. He said he does not believe there has been such a case. Still, he was quick to add that ballistic missiles and cruise missiles have different uses and purposes, so further related analysis is required. Ballistic missiles are fast and aim for extensive destruction, Cruise missiles are slower but capable of precision strikes. Yes, we'll be talking more about the differences and the significance of these cruise missile tests for our in-depth today. That's coming up later in the show. Meanwhile, the South Korean government lambasted Russia after its foreign ministry spokesperson publicly criticised President Yoon sung yeol for his remarks on North Korea as being blatantly biased. Can you tell us more? This happened over the weekend in a text message to local reporters on Saturday. South Korea's foreign ministry said that criticism by Moscow's spokesperson Maria Zakharova was below standards, rude, ignorant and biased, considering that these are official remarks by a foreign ministry spokesperson. The ministry said such comments have disregarded the clear reality that the North's threatening rhetoric and continued military provocations heightened tensions on the peninsula and the region. It added the spokesperson's remarks are repulsive sophistry from standards of a country that faithfully follows international norms. The ministry criticized the Russian leader's designation of the invasion of Ukraine as a special military operation for being nothing more than an unreasonable and stubborn attempt to mislead the international community. Last Wednesday, President Yoon said the North Korean regime is the only irrational entity in the world that has legalized the preemptive use of nuclear weapons. The Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Rudenko has also reportedly expressed serious concern over the escalation of tensions on the Korean Peninsula during consultation in South Korea. According to a TASS news agency on Sunday, Moscow's foreign ministry issued a statement regarding Rudenko's trip to Seoul last week, saying he expressed serious concerns over the sharp escalation of tensions in the region. The statement blamed the rising tensions on the policy of the United States, which attempts to push its regional allies toward the implementation of its aggressive plans, including militarily, for its own geopolitical objectives. The ministry said Russia has also expressed its intention to develop mutually beneficial cooperation with North Korea that accords with the norms of international law to bolster peace and stability in the region, according to them. And finally, South Korea's National Intelligence Service has found that an unidentified group of hackers stole personal information from some 13,000 accounts of users of government and state agencies' online service and illegally 
distributed the data via dark web or telegram. What more do we know? The top intel agency said on Monday that hackers were found to have stolen login info, including IDs and passwords that were saved in web browsers after spreading the info stealer malware via blogs. It notified the affected agencies and had them swiftly take measures to prevent further damage. The NIS urged those who use functions on auto-saving IDs and passwords to exercise caution as they can suffer greater damage from ransomware attacks should their stolen information end up in the hands of hackers via illegal distribution. That wraps up our news briefing for today. Daniel, thank you for those stories. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index went down 24 points, or 0.92% on Monday, to close the day at 2,591.31. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also declined, losing 6.78 points, or 0.83%, to close at 807.99. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 8.21 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,330.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Global News Roundup, our daily segment where we look beyond Korea and talk about issues making headlines around the world. Joining us for that in the studio today is KBS World Radio News Editor Tom McCarthy. Tom, hello. It's good to see you. Hi, Zhang Ho. It's good to see you. Okay, so picking up where we left off with Heejin last week, our attention turns once again to the Middle East, where the US and Britain launched another bombing wave against Houthi rebels in Yemen over the weekend in response to the militant group's attacks on ships in the Red Sea, while another bombing run was carried out in Syria and Iraq over a drone, over a drone strike on a US base in Jordan. So what can you tell us about the latest retaliatory strikes? The U.S. and Britain launched a pair of bombing strikes against Houthi targets in Yemen on Saturday, very shortly after attacking Iraq and Syria, and the conflict continues in the region. The Associated Press reported that the bombing of Yemen hit 36 Houthi-linked sites, such as underground weapons, storage facilities, air defense systems, and helicopters, with U.S. fighter jets and destroyers pounding the targets along with British jets. The Friday bombings of Syria and Iraq hit 85 targets in seven locations, including command headquarters, intelligence centers, and materiel depots, according to NBC. Yes, we knew these offensives were coming, right? Yes, so President Joe Biden alluded to a response as he boarded Marine One last Tuesday. And National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said in a briefing on Friday that Iraq was given a heads up. The bombing offensive came as a response to the deaths of three U.S. service members killed by a drone attack by Iran-backed militias at a base in Jordan the weekend before, warning that the targets of the strike would not be limited to one night, one target, or one group. And what have the two sides said since the bombings? Speaking to CNN's Dana Bash on Sunday, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned that more attacks cannot be ruled out if there are further attacks by the militias in the Middle Eastern countries. The Houthis, for their part, responded to the bombing with an official from the group writing on his social media account that the military operations against Israel, who it accuses of committing genocide, will continue regardless of the cost incurred. The official added that escalation by the U.S. and U.K. will be met with further escalation. 
Regarding the Friday strike, a spokesperson for one of the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq said Washington must understand that for every action there is a reaction, but also told the AP in an interview that there is no desire to escalate or widen regional tensions in an apparent attempt to strike a balance in the precarious situation. Meanwhile, understand that the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is on his way to Saudi Arabia as well to push for a Gaza ceasefire and aid. So we'll see what happens on that front this week. Let's turn next to the world of business. South Korea's very own Hyundai is looking f- uh, at rolling out an initial public offering for its India plant in what could possibly be the largest ever stock offering for the country. So what's happening here? According to Reuters on Monday, they quoted a pair of sources as saying that the automaker is exploring a possible $3 billion IPO with a valuation of up to $30 billion, a potential record for India. Several banks have reportedly been consulted as Hyundai gears up for the move, including J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Citi, and the Bank of America, although a spokesperson at Hyundai's India unit declined to comment, as did Bank of America. The sources said that the company wants to maximize India's IPO boom, which they said are standing out in the global market in a new way. The previous record IPO was Life Insurance Corporation in 2022, which raised up to $2.7 billion. So how has the company been doing in the country? India's second largest car maker by sales claimed around 15% of the market last fiscal year, according to Reuters, doing well with its range of small cars as other foreign automakers like Ford and General Motors have left the country. The article noted that analysts think the move is a bid to potentially bolster electric vehicle competition with Tesla, which is also planning to enter the country. Hyundai has said that it will invest nearly $4 billion in India over the next decade, launching new EVs, charging stations, and battery assembly facilities. The automaker stepped on the gas with its India division last August when it purchased a GM plant in the country as the U.S. company was headed for the off-ramp out of the country. Manufacturing at the plant is set to start in 2025. So it looks like it could be another big year for the Korean car giant. Uh, and quickly, let's turn to our attention to the glitz and glamour of this year's biggest music awards, the Grammys. Uh, it took place on Sunday and pop megastar Taylor Swift made history. What more can you tell us? Swift indeed made history as she became the first ever artist to win a fourth album of the year Grammy for Midnight's. The awards website noted that she surpassed legends like Frank Sinatra, Stevie Wonder, and Paul Simon with the win. Her inaugural Album of the Year award came in 2009 for Fearless, before she claimed it again in 2015 for 1989, and again six years later for Folklore. Before the ceremony began, Swift was tied with Barbra Streisand for the most nominations for the Top Album Award by a female artist with six. The album already set a record in 2022 around its debut, with the U.S. music tracker Billboard announcing that all top 10 spots on its Hot 100 chart were tracks off the album for the first time ever as an anti-hero, as anti-hero claimed the number one spot. And even as she made history, Swift was ever gracious, thanking those who helped make the album what it is. Who did she credit? As she won the award, she brought producer Jack Antonoff, who originally became famous for her, his work in the band Fun, and Lana Del Rey, who contributed to the track Snow on the Beach. She called Antonoff, with whom she has collaborated on tracks from 1989 and the five subsequent albums, a once-in-a-generation producer, while lauding Del Rey as a legacy artist, a legend in her prime right now. So how many Grammys has she won now? She's taken home 14 Grammys with 52 nominations, according to the awards website. 
Her first win came in 2010, taking home the Album of the Year prize for Fearless at 20 years and 49 days old, the youngest ever winner in the category at the time. And she is now seventh in the ranking for all-time female Grammy winners, a list topped by Beyonce with a record for individual artists and groups at 32, followed by bluegrass country legend Alison Krauss at 27. Yes, but as Beyonce's husband Jay-Z pointed out rather controversially on Sunday, Beyonce has never won Album of the Year, so there is that. When it comes to the sheer number of wins, Taylor Swift has some way to catch up to the force of pop. That is Beyonce, I guess, but uh, I definitely wouldn't bet money against it either. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our Global News Roundup. Tom, thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me. My name is Anna Yates Liu, Assistant Professor from the Department of Korean Music at Seoul National University. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. North Korea announced on Saturday that it had conducted a super-large cruise missile warhead power test the previous day, as well as test fire a new type of anti-aircraft missile. The launches on Friday marked the North's fourth round of cruise missile tests within 10 days. North Korea has been extending its provocative series of weapons tests in the new year, as leader Kim Jong-un calls for his military to step up war preparations. To look closer at these missile tests and the escalating tensions on the Korean Peninsula, we're joined on the line today by two guests. First, we have retired Lieutenant General Chan Inbam from the South Korean Army. General, thank you for your time once again today. Thank you for the invitation. And we also have a non-proliferation expert, Professor Daniel Pinkston from Troy University, standing by. Professor Pinkston, hello and thank you for being with us as well. Hi, it's great to be here. So in recent weeks, North Korea has carried out several tests of cruise missiles. General Chan, can you start us off with the basics? Can you explain for our listeners what a cruise missile is and what risks they pose? Why is the development of cruise missiles significant? So a cruise missile is a low-flying missile which is guided to its target by an onboard computer. In contrast, a ballistic missile is a missile that is initially powered and guided, but falls under gravity onto its target, typically following a high arcing trajectory. The cruise missile is very maneuverable, and because it has a lot of flexibility, it poses a multiple uh, level of threats to the defender. Uh, Contrast to that, It is slower than most uh, ballistic missiles and therefore easier to shoot down. Okay, and out of the four recent tests during the second round of launches, the regime also tested submarine-launched cruise missiles, according to the North State Media. Uh, What's the significance of uh, this, General? Uh, What are its technical advantages? Yeah, so uh, compared to a submarine-launched ballistic missile, 
these cruise missiles that are launched from a submarine usually uses existing torpedo tubes instead of uh, modifications uh, to the submarine. So it adds to the flexibility of the submarine's capability. And so it poses another threat uh, and a capability that the North Koreans can have. Mm. So, General Chan, looking at these recent uh, tests, then what are your takeaways from them? How far have their abilities come? Well, uh, recent North Korean claims says that uh, they're uh, installing nuclear warheads on these cruise missiles, and they're showing some uh, footage uh, to the explosive nature of their their uh, capabilities. So we cannot take this lightly. But at the same time, some of the footage that I've seen it could be taken as a, a bit of an exaggeration. It doesn't seem as real to me as it would uh, common sense would tell you. But overall, we should take the North Korean development of these capabilities very seriously. Professor Pinkston, let me turn to you now. What have you made of these recent cruise missile launches? What were your takeaways? Well, I agree with General Chun. The, the North Korean regime has mentioned on multiple occasions that this is a high priority of uh, military development. Also, the uh, leader Kim Jong-un has expressed the, the need to nuclearize the, the Navy to um, uh, provide the, the naval forces with the nuclear strike capability. So they're working on this uh, very diligently. They work on their programs every day. So I agree that this must be taken uh, very, very seriously. But they do have a number of uh, vulnerabilities as well. When you say vulnerabilities, such as? Well, I I think, um, you know, in terms of uh, conventional forces across the board, anti-submarine warfare, um, I think the North Koreans are overmatched. And I think uh, these systems can be uh, countered with uh, jamming and electronic warfare. However, the problem with these types of systems, particularly if they're nuclear systems, um, you know, the the failure rate has to be zero. If one nuclear missile gets through, it would be uh, catastrophic. But I think uh, it's important that North Koreans realize, and I think they do realize, that the use of any nuclear weapon against um, U.S. allies or the United States would uh, trigger an overwhelming uh, response. I think they're observing what's going on in the Middle East right now uh, with the attacks against uh, commercial shipping in the region and against uh, U.S. forces that killed three American soldiers. And we see what kind of response uh, the U.S. and its allies have have launched against those uh, militia groups. And uh, the U.S. flew B-1 bomber from the U.S., has been flying them uh, in those attacks or those counterstrikes. And these are these are conventional forces or conventional capabilities that the U.S. can actually use. Um, you can't really use nuclear weapon. I think that would be the end of the regime. And uh, so I think North Korea, to some extent, is uh, deterred. General Chun, with the latest cruise missile test as well, there's been speculation about whether they're preparing uh, development to have a miniaturized nuclear warheads to be fitted onto the cruise missiles as well. How far do you think they've come on that front? Well, the North Koreans claim that they are standardizing the warhead of their nuclear arsenal so that they can fit on a variety of missiles and uh, 
weapons. So it is quite plausible that the cruise missiles that they have displayed and tested could be armed with these types of nuclear warheads, and that these nuclear warheads can be applied not only to cruise missiles, but their multiple rocket launchers and other types of weaponry. So it is a it is a uh, significant claim that the North Koreans are making. And to be quite honest with you, uh, we should take this very seriously. So the North Koreans are step-by-step progressing with their goals of making their nuclear capability more capable uh, day by day. And this is something that is a very serious threat to not only the Republic of Korea, but also to Northeast Asia and to the world, because North Korea is known to proliferate their capabilities. Hmm. Yes, indeed. And on that note, the cruise missiles are not the only missiles that North Korea has launched this year. In January, North Korea said it successfully launched its solid-fuel hypersonic intermediate-range ballistic missile. Uh, General, again, can you tell us what we know about this missile and why it's significant? How threatening is it? So these hypersonic missiles, they're really, really fast. Uh, Sometimes over 20 times the sound of... uh, Uh, speed of sound. So these things are very fast, but more threatening is the missile's capability to maneuver at the last stage. So how we shoot down these ballistic missiles is to, uh, by uh, calculating the impact area and thereby shooting uh, at the trajectory, at the anticipated trajectory, a hypersonic missile is not only very fast, but it maneuvers and makes it very, very difficult to achieve interception. So they are basically uh, taking to their goal a missile that is very, very hard to shoot down and probably a missile that is nuclear-armed. Professor Pinkston, how concerning is the development of a hypersonic missile? Well, I agree with everything uh, General Chun said. That's right. When they, um, they're very fast and they skip or maneuver in the terminal stage, so they're very difficult to intercept. They can uh, penetrate in defense uh, and defeat air defense systems, so this is problematic. Um, so the only real countermeasure in that case is retali- re- uh, retaliation and retaliatory strike. So I think uh, this is why it's important to have the uh, retaliatory capabilities to train for these contingencies. So air defense forces and counter-strike forces have to be uh, ready and prepared for such a contingency. It's very unpleasant to think about, but the the North Koreans have to be uh, aware that um, the use of any such weapon system would would, uh, uh, result in uh, costs that would be uh, unbearable and beyond any expected gain that they would expect to uh, achieve through such aggression. Right. So, uh, Professor Pinkston, you've talked about perhaps how South Korea and the U.S. could react to uh, some of the threats if they were ever used. But is there anything that can, we can do to be more proactive to preempt uh, these situations and uh, the risks that they pose, or at least to be able to perhaps defend ourselves? Uh, what options, what capabilities uh, do South Korea and the U.S. have at the moment? Of course, all of the uh, missile defense systems, the counter-strike capabilities, civil defense, and so forth, 
Um, unfortunately, we, we uh, live in an er- uh, a time where there could always be accidents or, or errors. But generally speaking, a strike does not come out of the blue. There would be a number of ob- observable steps, some kind of tensions or some kind of political demands. And I think uh, the North Korean leadership is waiting or anticipating some fracture in the uh, liberal world order, the alliance systems. So this is why uh, these states such as Russia, uh, North Korea and Iran are cooperating to overturn uh, this liberal uh, order. And uh, they're expecting this to fracture. And if that were to happen in East Asia, the U.S.-led alliance systems uh, were to collapse and then if North Korea were able to isolate South Korea uh, without a nuclear capability, then they could coerce or anticipate the ability to coerce uh, South Korea into complying with the North Korean demands. But I think as long as the uh, coalition of democratic uh, forces, as long as that coalition holds and uh, we're prepared, then I think North Korea can be deterred, and they are deterred today, fortunately. General Chun, what do you think? What do you make of South Korea and the U.S.'s force and their capabilities to respond to the threats that we've talked about today? So Dr. Pinkston has mentioned deterrence and the importance of civil defense, which we now are looking into just now. Uh, uh, Recreating the uh, civic uh, exercise drills and so forth. But having said that, no country is impervious to such an onslaught that the North Koreans are now envisioning. So until the North Koreans perfect their capabilities, we must also uh, perfect our capabilities. And one of the deterrence or defenses that we might be able to consider is laser weaponry. Uh, We have the Korea Air Missile Defense System, but it's... No air missile defense system in the world right now is perfect. So our next hope might be lasers, which could be the answer to these kinds of threats. So hopefully by the time the North Koreans perfect their capability, we will also be able to have a laser capability and uh, regional defense uh, systems to be able to defend ourselves against such a threat. How far are we away from such technology? Well, about five to ten years, but we can shorten the effort if we put in more effort in these areas and cooperate with nations that have been looking into these kinds of uh, laser technology. So uh, I would really uh, support that kind of initiative. Well, in the meantime, uh, U.S. officials are reportedly warning of possible lethal military action by North Korea as the regime ramps up its uh, provocations and rhetoric against South Korea. There is concern that the regime is looking to uh, ramp up pressure this year as there are two key elections coming up as well, the South Korean parliamentary elections in April and the US presidential election in November. Uh, To wrap up, Professor Pinkston, how real do you think is the risk that North Korea might carry out localised provocations this year that could even possibly lead to casualties? Well, I think we have to unpack that uh, uh, word or term provocation, and it could uh, trigger or require a number of different responses. So first of all, we have to uh, determine whether or not it's an armed attack or a use of force as defined under the U.N. Charter. It's a violation of the U.N. Charter and international law. 
then we have to think about what domain, what type of uh, aggression takes place in which domain. Is it on the ground, the air? Is it maritime space, cyberspace, space, or the information space? What's the scale of the event? What's the location? Um, what's the risk of escalation and loss of life? And, of course, escalation can occur with an armed response. Um, the Republic of Korea and every nation, every U.N. member state has the right to self-defense under the U.N. Charter. So uh, if you come under attack, if there's an armed attack or aggression by North Korea, uh, we run the risk of uh, you know, triggering further escalation if it's a disproportionate response or it can also result in greater um, uh, use of force by North Korea by uh, standing down and uh, simply doing nothing can embolden North Korea. So this is something that has to be fine-tuned and um, in many cases coordinated with allies. So I think we have to unpack that, and that's why exercises are so important that will be going on this spring, and uh, preparedness to respond in any of these domains so that any act of aggression um, would not result in any gain or perceived gain for North Korea. General, how real are the risks this year? The risks are real, very real. But I also want to just um, extend uh, on what Dr. Princeton has said. So we need to make sure that we define provocation a little bit more you know, in detail. North Korea for sure is going to shoot more missiles and cruise missiles and what have you. And it is a provocation. But this provocation, I think, needs to be uh, thought out differently from the kinds of provocations where a North Korean submarine comes into our territory or they shell one of our islands. Do I believe that uh, North Koreans are going to conduct a shelling of one of our islands or ambush one of our patrols? Not this year. I think they know that it is not in their best interest to try to influence uh, South Korean or U.S. elections in that manner. They will try to maintain a posture where they want to be remembered by the United States and South Korean politicians, but I don't think they will do that by uh, direct provocation. I'm more concerned about the future, where next year or the year after that, when the North Koreans feel more emboldened by their capabilities and that they want to make a statement that they might use that kind of direct provocation. So we need to think about the... Uh, word provocation and what it means, um, because it's a real wide spectrum. On that note, uh, we'll leave it there. We're speaking to uh, retired Lieutenant General Chan Inbum and Professor Daniel Pinkston from Troy University. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sport around the peninsula. Are you a fan of K-pop? Then be sure to join us on Tuesday to get the latest in the entertainment and K-pop world. For all the bookworms out there, tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our literary critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Join us on an adventure every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea24.
Up next is our weekly segment, Monday Sports Roundup. Here we get the latest headlines from the world of sports in Korea uh, to get our regular sporting fix. And providing us with the updates, we have joining us on the line now, sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yonhap News Agency. Ji-ho, hello. It's great to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yes, we begin with the fact that South Korea are through to the semi-finals of the AFC Asian Cup in Qatar. The Taegook Warriors are continuing on almost their miraculous ride, it seems now, through the competition. They've completed yet another last gasp comeback, this time beating Australia in the quarterfinals last Friday. Next up will be Jordan on Tuesday. But first, Jiho, let's recap another breathless rally by Korea against the Socceroos. Yeah, breathless indeed. Uh, Captain Son Heung-min and his fellow Premier League player, Hwang Hee-chan, doing the heavy lifting as they grabbed South Korea by their collar and just dragged them to the last four of this tournament. Uh, Korea were trailing 1-0, just minutes away from having their title dream crash and burn. And then Son Heung-min drew a penalty, and he usually takes those penalties for Korea, but Hwang Hee-chan insisted he wanted to take this one himself. So Hwang stepped up, just confidently struck the ball into the top left corner to tie the match. And then he returned the favor for Son when, during extra time, he drew a free kick just outside the box on the left side, and he let his captain take the kick. And, of course, the Son, that's his sort of his zone, really. He scores a lot of goals from that area. Scored a beauty of a free kick goal to give Korea a 2-1 to lead. They hung on to win by the score. So, you know... I think the fourth consecutive match in which they scored in extra time, I guess, or stoppage time in the second half. Uh, just their run so far, just defying explanation or uh, logic <laughs> to this point. So they're going to go take on Jordan uh, midnight Wednesday Korean time, uh, 6 p.m. in Qatar time on Tuesday night. Yes, it was a remarkable finish to the game, especially by Sonny. It was mm-hmm. pure grit and determination, plus some world-class quality. What's all the more remarkable about the late comeback, an extra-time winner, was the fact that Korea had two fewer days of rest than Australia coming into the match. And this was their second straight match that went into extra time. I mean, how did they get it done? Yeah, it's got to be something in the just the, their man, mental fortitude, how they were able to... You know, not only just play the way they did and pull it off in, in extra time as well. And, you know, there were times when it looked like Korea was a better rested team than Australia. Uh, so you've got to give credit to these players, again, mental strength, obviously their physical, con- physical conditioning as well. And the drive, the desire to win uh, Korea's first Asian Cup since 1960 are apparently there among the players. And, you know, you, you hear often about the, uh, a lot about the criticism that Coach Jürgen Klinsmann has faced pretty much his entire time with the, as a Korean head coach, but you know he's not a brilliant tactician, and apparently, uh, you know he doesn't spend a lot of t- a lot of time in, in the in the country in Korea. But you know what? Apparently, he's doing a pretty good job motivating these players to get them playing playing at such a high level, of fatigue or not. So, uh, pointing out, I mentioned uh, the, all the goals being scored in late minutes. Uh, incredibly, they've had four goals. The three by themselves and one own goal by Jordan in the group stage earlier during the second half stoppage time so far this tournament. So, um, you know, they've had one victory in regulation in 90 minutes. There was a 3-1 win over Bahrain in the first group match way back on January 15th. Uh, So they've needed, uh, you know, extra time to win both of the knockout matches so far. And Klinsman himself said he would like to actually get it done earlier than that (laughs) against Jordan in the semifinals. 
Yes, I think the fans would appreciate uh, the team getting it done in the 90 minute as well, just for their heart rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the fact that Klinsmann and the team said right from the start so openly that their goal is to win the competition, that there has been this uh, never give up attitude. They just mm-hmm. won't let it happen. So it's been uh, incredible to watch. Let's look ahead now to the semi-final against Jordan. Korea has already faced them in the group stage, as you mentioned, but they found it difficult against the uh, Middle East team. Uh, how do you think Korea will fare this time? Yeah, so it was not a good match at all. Uh, you know, Korea came pretty close to losing that match two to one, uh, with Jordan, you know, scoring their go-ahead goal late in the first half, really hanging on uh, for dear life until they gave up an own goal in the dying moments when uh, Hwang Inbom's shot went off uh, went off the leg of one of the defenders. So they ended up setting for two to draw, and Son Heung-min afterward admitted that his team was fortunate to come away with a point in that match. Now, since that one, uh, Jordan have been up and down. They lost to Bahrain in the final group match. They defeated Iraq with two stop-time goals after an Iraqi player was ejected, I guess controversially, for excessive celebration of his goal. And Jordan then needed an own goal to get past Tajikistan in the quarterfinals. So they've not been all that great since almost beating Korea in the second group match. Now, Korea has been also up and down as well, almost losing to Malaysia or you know, you know, signaling for draw there, 3-3, basically almost losing to Saudi and Australia back-to-back. Now, in the semis, Korea will not be with their best defender, their best centre-back, Kim Min-jae, who picked up his second yellow of the tournament late against Australia. So he's been um, automatically suspended uh, for the semifinals. But Jordan also will be without a couple of their own players with the two yellow cards. Uh, but you know what? If you look at some of the numbers, Korea has conceded eight goals in five matches with Kim Min-jae in the lineup. So maybe his absence probably not going to affect one way or the other. Uh, I do think that, though, that uh, fatigue might be an issue with this team. You know, they've played 240-plus minutes back-to-back over a four-day span last week. So, you know, by this point, I think you know, everyone is playing with something, some sort of a bruise, a bumps and bruises. And mm. right now, I think they're just relying on the men- mental strength to get by because... There's, there's literally, I don't think, anybody who's 100% healthy or physically fit at this point. Indeed. But still, Korea are the favourites. And mm-hmm. the final, as well as the chance to be crowned King of Asia for the first time in 64 years, beckons. The semi-final against Jordan will be taking place uh, Tuesday, 6pm local time, as you said, which is midnight here in Korea. So midnight going into Wednesday. Uh, another late night for fans here, unfortunately. Hopefully the team will make it worthwhile. But I think we would, as I said, all appreciate no extra time and less drama this time. But uh, this team doesn't do things easy, it seems. So we'll see. OK, that's not the only football news that's been in headlines recently. While the national team was advancing in the Asian Cup, news of a major new signing broke out of the domestic K-League. FC's Hull are close to signing the English international and former Manchester United midfielder Jesse Lingard. He has touched down now in Korea. He would instantly become the biggest name to ever sign for a K-League side. In fact, even his arrival at Incheon Airport today was broadcast live online by some uh, media outlets. So, Jiho, what's the latest on this story? Yeah, it was just a massive scene out at Incheon International Airport with Lingard arriving, uh, you know, greeted by hundreds of fans, uh, you know, holding uh, their Man United uh, shirts and everything. So, you know, he stopped for some selfies, some uh, signed some autographs, uh, did not speak to, to the media uh, at the airport as he uh, uh, left 
the airport, in, in, I guess, in a bit of a hurry there. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people did a double take. You know, is this the same Jesse Lingard that we know that he's, that's about to sign with the FC Seoul? Now, reports came out of England just last week that uh, he was about to join FC Seoul on a two-year contract with an option for a third season. And FC Seoul at the time acknowledged that they were in sort of they were engaging talks with Lingard, but uh, was you know nothing was final at the time. But now that he's in the country, uh, you know he's going to go through a medical uh, later this week and uh, potentially be introduced at a uh, press conference by Thursday in Seoul. Now uh, he's 31 years old. He's been without a club since leaving Nottingham Forest last summer. Uh, spent uh, parts of 11 years with the Manchester United. That's where he really became a sort of a well-known player. Uh, 32 caps for, caps for England, including six during the uh, 2018 World Cup in Russia. Uh, you know, this summer, I guess, or just as, a, as this off-season or during the winter window, he's had, he has drawn some interest from teams in Saudi Saudi Arabia and also Turkey. Um, I think I read somewhere that he had offers from 2016. 26 different clubs. Mm. So I'd be really curious to find out why he chose FC Seoul over <laughs> those other teams because I, I cannot imagine FC Seoul would have offered him more money than teams from, let's say, Saudi. So mm. it's gotta be, you know, there's got to be something that proved to, to, to be the difference maker for Lingard to choose to come to Korea at this stage in, in his career. Yes, I feel that is the question that everyone will be asking. What made him decide to come to Korea, mm-hmm. of all places? But no offence to the K-League, of course. He's, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. He's certainly going to be box office. Whether that excitement of his arrival matches what we see on the pitch, I think will be another question, as he hasn't played much in the last six months to a year or so. But still, this is quite a remarkable coup for Korean football. Everyone, I think, is excited to see what happens next. Okay, let's move on now to some other sports. Let's over. To, let's head over to Canada next and speed skating, because South Korean sprinter Kim Min Sun finished second in the World Cup overall standings there, after closing out her season with a gold and a silver over the weekend. Can you tell us more? Yeah, sure. Kim Min Sun in the uh, women's 500 meters, uh, she won the gold and a silver in the final two races of the World Cup season, uh, taking place in Quebec City in Canada. So she won the gold medal in the first of two 500-meter races, set a new track record time with 37.69 seconds. And then on, uh, the next day on Sunday, she finished second place at 37.91 seconds, 0.2 behind FMK Cock of the Netherlands. A win is worth 60 points in the World Cup standings. A silver medal is good for 54 points. So 114 points for Kim Min-sun, but not enough uh, for her to overtake Aaron Jackson of the U.S. in the overall standings. Uh, Kim Min-sun finished with 514, only eight behind Jackson, um, who finished off the podium on Saturday, uh, third place on Sunday. Uh, Kim Min-sun, if you recall, she began the season really slowly, uh, finishing off the podium in the first two races while she was trying to work herself into a new pair of uh, boots. But you know what? She went back to her old pair of skates and has won a medal in every race since then. That's eight in a row. You know, last year, she cruised to the overall World Cup title. She won five gold and one silver in six races. This time, 10 races, uh, missing the podium a couple of, first couple of times. That kind of cost her, I think, in the overall standings. Okay, so the boots didn't work out in the end, but it's great to see that she is still on top four. Finally, let's, have a, let's head over to the Women's Volleyball League in Korea 
where the Hunguk Life Pink Spiders have won their first two matches since acquiring their new opposite hitter, Willow Johnson. She's, of course, the daughter of the American baseball legend Randy Johnson. The Pink Spiders are chasing down Hyundai ENC for the top spot in the standings. And, Jiwoi, it seems Johnson has settled in nicely. Yeah, I mean, two matches, not a big sample, but uh, so far so good for uh, Johnson and her team. Uh, you know, she's wearing number 51, just like her dad, Randy Johnson, did during his Hall of Fame baseball career, and also lefty, just like her father. And she scored a team-high 19 points to lift the uh, Hong Life Pink Spiders past GS Caltech's in three sets on Friday, 25-20, 25-19, and 26-24. She made a really debut back on January 30th, has 17 points, 17 points then. And Kim Young-kyung and uh, Reyna Tukohu took each had 15 points in Friday's victory for a uh, balanced attack for the Pink Spiders. So if Johnson and others can really step up when Kim Young-kyung is not getting her 20 to 30 points, this, can, this team could really be dangerous. Um, you know, they're 26. They've got 56 points in the standings, six back of Hyundai ENC, uh, who are also 26. Uh, but uh, they have a, little, a few more points because of some of the uh, shutout victories there. But they lost a 5 0 to Chang Guanjang on Sunday, so only getting one point there against their underdog team, not able to pull away from Hong Kong Life. So the battle for top place coming down to, coming down the wire late in the V League season. Okay, that's all for our Monday Sports Roundup today. Jiho, thank you for those updates, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks for having me. And that's where we wrap up our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.